This week, news leaked of the Trump administration's deployment of an unspecified number of military service members to paint stretches of the border reinforcements in the California town of Calexico. The goal? To improve the border's aesthetic appearance. There's precedent to this. Wall builders go to great lengths to hide and distract the brutality of border walls. For example, during the Cold War, the East German government ordered the Berlin Wall to be fully rebuilt more than once for the purpose of gaining prestige. That was before visual artists transformed that wall into the world's largest canvas for expressions of resistance. For contemporary artist Ana Teresa Fernandez, the idea of painting the U.S.-Mexico border is not new. She's a renowned artist and social sculptor. She was born in Mexico and is based in California. Back in 2011, she painted stretches of the U.S.-Mexico border fence, a blue, the color of the sky, for a project she called Borando la Frontera, Erasing the Border. Fernandez has worked at the U.S.-Mexico border for over 15 years, before the Trump presidency, and has seen the border fence become increasingly militarized. And so that's when I'm talking about in around 2003-2004, where I began using the border as a site-specific place for my work, where I became aware, and, and it completely just, you know, hit me with a huge bang in my gut when I first saw it and witnessed it. We spoke to Fernandez about her life growing up in Mexico and Southern California and what happened when she painted the border near Tijuana. We also discussed her continued artist practice at global borderlines and crossing points for migrant families, including the Mediterranean Sea, and her recent collaboration with writer and cultural geographer Rebecca Solnit. I'm your host, Paul Farber. This is Monument Lab. Welcome to Monument Lab, a public art and history podcast. Each episode, we explore stories and critical conversations around the past, present, and future of monuments. We speak to people on the front lines, building the next generation of public spaces through stories of social justice and equity. Here are the monumental people, places, and ideas of our time. This season of Monument Lab, all of our conversations are transcribed and posted on our website, thanks to our partners at Rev.com. They're supporting us with on-demand transcripts. Anyone can use Rev to transcribe interviews, first drafts, or almost anything recorded at just $1 a minute. Thank you, Rev. Ana Teresa Fernandez, welcome to Monument Lab. Thank you so much for having me. Really glad to have you on the program. You've been someone on our mind for for some time. Your work centers on the U.S.-Mexico border and um, border issues around the world. And you grew up in Mexico until age 11 and then moved to San Diego. Can you describe where you grew up in Mexico and what you remember about your childhood there? Yeah, Paul, uh, I grew up in Tampico, Tamaulipas, and a lot of people actually, it's, it's, it's not where the juice is from, actually, Tampico Citrus Punch. It's this really small town. Well, it's now kind of a bigger industrial city, but it was back then it was a small town on the Gulf Coast of Mexico. And that's where my, my father's from. Um, and I grew up there. There's so many things I remember, and more than anything, it's an incredibly sensorial place. Um, visually it, it, it's, you know, it's surrounded by water, there's swamps, there's lakes. Um, it's on the Gulf coast. So obviously the, the beach and the ocean's right there as well. Um, but there's so much water that in fact, and there's this lake in the middle of the city where there's actually alligators. And so you're kind of like driving around in the city and you're driving around next to this <laughs> lake and you see these like alligators just hanging out and you're like okay 
And sometimes they've actually gotten away from the lake and um, gone into a couple of places around there that have like public pools. So they ended up in public pools. Um, So there's this really interesting, surreal slash magical realism aspect to the city because it's, you know, no matter how hard uh, people attempt to manicure nature it's so incredibly humid and dense and tropical that the nature just you know is in constant combat with with humans and so you see all these incredible plants just you know wrapping around buildings and growing in different you know any little orifice it can find um so it's an incredibly luscious city um very very humid you're constantly sweating even when you take a shower um, it's really dense. So there's always a lot of smells. Like I remember running when I would, um, come back to, to visit my family, I would be running as exercise around the city and there would be mangoes like falling. And so so sometimes you have to be aware of like where the mango would fall similar to Hawaii, like don't get banged by the coconut, you know, it's like, don't get bombarded (laughs) by the mango. So, you know, like, so there was always this, I remember this smell, you know, when we would drive around of like rotten mangoes on the street, just because, you know, there was so much fruit and vegetation around. So that was what I grew up around. Um, and it, and it seemed, like I said, there was this very magical quality and moving to San Diego when I was 11, it was such a contrast, you know, a very sprawled city, incredibly manicured, uh, very monotone, um, with its colors and hues, whereas Tampico, there's like a pink house next to an orange house, next to a blue house, next to a green house. So it's like very much um, quite extreme opposite. If Tampico was lush and um, the smell of of, of mangoes um, overriding mangoes, <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> we're in the air. What what was the landscape of San Diego? I know you described it as monotone, but what? What else from the landscape of San Diego struck you? Well, we arrived to Tijuana when we first got there, when we were moving. And, you know, there's this desert, arid landscape. And the the airport is actually right up against the border. So you see this very long, long fence, almost like it's this sleeping dragon that's just you know, running across the terrain and everything. Like the first thing I noticed that there was this taste of dust in my mouth and it was dry. You know, there's these neutral colors and beige and brown, whereas, you know, I, I would rarely see dust, you know, because everything was always so moist that even the soil was kind of darker toned. Um, and then you cross over and, and everything's chaotic in Tijuana. It's loud. There's like, you know, cars with, with, uh, loudspeakers selling trinkets and brooms and whatnot. And you, you cross the line, La Linea. And on the other side, it's like, it looks like a poodle, you know, everything's heavily manicured and green and perfect. And, you know, the grass begins here, the cement ends there. You know what I mean? Like everything has a finite, um, measurement. You know where everything begins and where everything ends. Where in Tijuana, it's like, it maybe begins here and then it joins with something else and everything morphs together. And, um, I don't know what the name in English is, but, you know, injertos, like when, you know, when, when you put one patch of skin onto an, to another place and like all of a sudden you have these kind of like multiple skins, so that's Tijuana, you know, it's like a hybrid of, of just objects blending into each other. Whereas San Diego, everything's, you know, very finite. When you went to school, did you notice changes or did you notice differences in the, the style of education or in just the culture of the school? You know, in Tampico, I went to school with all my family members, all my cousins. We all knew each other. We all did after school activities together. Um, there was, there was a closeness to my teachers that I felt like, you know, they, they were friends with my aunts and there was a certain proximity and warmth. Whereas in San Diego, once I started going to school, like, oh, you know, uh, everything was just distant. Um, there was a certain formality and not that education doesn't require formality, but I feel like there was a warmth that was missing. It was, it was incredibly, um, institutional in the sense that um, everything was much more heavily regimented. Um, I went to a private school, a a religious private school, which, (laughs) you know, I I couldn't be more atheist. 
Um, and I think it made me more atheist. And I remember one time when I was first arriving to school and I was going to meet someone. And when you greet someone in Mexico, no matter how old you are, you reach over to kiss them on the cheek. And they got scared because I was reaching over and they pushed me away. And so that was my introduction, you know, like someone like physically pushing me away. Uh, so there was definitely this, this very much like isolation, separation, you're over there, I'm over here. Do you recall the first time or one of the first times you saw the U.S.-Mexico border from the United States side? You know, that, I have to be honest with you, that was not until, I mean, apart from when you're crossing it, obviously, that you're, that you, you know, you, you're coming upon it to cross to Tijuana. So I saw it, you know, like pretty, pretty soon after I move in the regards of like where you're, you're, you're herded like cattle to go into Mexico, right? But anywhere else that's not the actual physical, you know, entry line, the official entry line, um, the, the one at the beach, for example, on the other side of Friendship Park, I didn't actually see that until, I want to say, 2004, which I was, you know, pretty much into my mid-20s. Um, so it wasn't until almost close to 15 years after I had been there because it is so well concealed for anyone on the U.S. side it's out of sight, out of mind, you know, unless you're, you know, you're going to party in Mexico, of course you go through the official entry point, but there's absolutely no vehicular access close, remotely close. Um, the closest place is two miles away. So there's no visual access to this, to this border. Is the reason you didn't see it until later in your life because it it wasn't a site of intrigue for you or because it looked and acted kind of differently in the sense of the divided cities of San Diego and Tijuana? Well, to be honest, I mean, uh, because I did have this porous relationship to it in which, I mean, when I say porous relationship to the fence, you know, where I could go in because I had the papers, I could go in and out and go to Mexico and come back to the U.S., but at this point, I was just, you know, a teenager, a student in high school. I wasn't making art. I came into art when I was in my 20s. Um, and when it wasn't until I was in art school in San Francisco um, when I was 21, where I began working to create a language and to create my language and my description of what I wanted to be articulating that's when I realized, you know, I was talking about gender politics. I was talking about the role in women in my life because I was telling stories. I was beginning to tell stories of what I felt frustrated with, what I felt friction and disparity um, in where there was this, 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 this level of, of just anger and discomfort. And so it began with what I knew, which was, you know, the role of women and thus then leading me into immigration and the people surrounding me. And when I began to, to realize, um, you know, the people that were working with me and the different stories that they were telling me about their relationship not being porous to the border, their relationship being completely different, which is one way they can't come back, you know, they risk their, their life going one way, but a little bit like the parking lots where they have the spikes on the floor where the cars can only go one way unless if they, they go in reverse, it gets punctured. Once I began hearing these stories of people that could not go in reverse and they were stuck here, isolated, then that's what drove me to the border. And my mom, who had picked up a camera at a similar time when I was going to school in San Francisco, um, and she began exploring the border, um, she was the one that actually took me to Friendship Park. She was the one that introduced me to this area of the border that was close to the ocean and divided the beach in half. And so that's when I'm talking about in around 2003, 2004, where I began using the border as a site-specific place for my work, where I became aware. And, and it completely just, you know, hit me with a huge bang in my gut when I first saw it and witnessed it. And not only that, but actually hearing stories from from individuals that were there um, sleeping at the beach, wanting and attempting to cross the border by swimming at night 
you know, and then just being completely open about sharing those stories of how they had tried and they had been deported and they tried more around the desert. And now they were going to attempt to swim because someone had um, swam to Coronado, which is this island on a boogie board for a couple of miles. And that, you know, you're listening to these stories of these young men that are there, you know, with nothing on them. And you just realize, oh my God, this wall, you know, this, 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 this is kind of the original context of the meaning of the word deadline. You know, deadline first was introduced back in the, the time of the first prisons in the United States around 1840, where deadline um, was a line allocated around the prison that had no physical border. But if a man or an individual crossed it, they would shoot at you. And later on, the word got transformed to mean, you know, what it means now as a, as a time, time frame. Um, but for me, that border became this kind of, that's literally what it means. It's a deadline, you know, of so many individuals that actually lose their lives attempting to cross it. And that's when I, I just knew I had to, to begin introducing it into my language, into my visual language. You mentioned this really pivotal moment um in which your mother, uh, who's also an artist, um, took yes. you to, to Friendship Park. And, um, you know, you mentioned that she had a camera with her and was taking photos. Uh, I'm curious about the interaction that you had in your conversation, but also as an artist, what tools did you use to take in uh, that those moments and as you say, allow that to kind of filter into your consciousness, into your visual language. Right. My mom, like I said, she, she became an, a, a photographer at the same time that I became an artist. So she was, had been documenting not just that area in Friendship Park, but all along the border, different areas. And at one point when she was younger, she actually had wanted to become, she wanted to study archaeology. And so uh, my grandfather and, you know, their, their family was like, you know, it's, it's kind of not an investment for women to go get an education. So she wasn't allowed to go to Mexico city to study archeology. span So instead she, she got married, she got a job, she got married. Um, and so very, very similarly to our, an archeologist, she began taking photos, the physical kind of up close shots of them, the, the, the differences of the, of the border, the different materiality, how people have placed their marks on it in different areas and how they were placing their marks and how they were using it. There were all these, a plethora of expressions on it, um, of aggression, of fear, of sadness. She literally took me across the border through her images and she collected all these stories. So once she would bring me to these areas, to these different areas of the border, it was like I, like a, like a distant, not family member, but this, this thing that you had kind of grown to know a little bit more just because of her sharing images with me constantly. When I would go up to it, it's like, oh my God, I, I didn't realize you felt this way in person. I didn't realize you smelled like this in person. I would have all these emotions when I met you in person. Um, similarly to when you, you know, you, you see books of different arts, artworks, and, and then you see the artwork itself and you're just kind of blown away. But in this case, in a, not in a positive way, in a very kind of tragic way. So all those things, Paul, just fed into my, in, into my, re, you know, my reactions, my visceral reactions that I had with it. And not only that, but not only the physical presence of it, but also the surrounding anecdotes, stories, individuals, people that I met through my mom that were living right up to the border and using it as a fourth wall that were literally like shanty homes. Um, and like I said, they, they were like, you know, duct taping it to other walls and that was their fourth wall. All of a sudden you're kind of like soaking up all this information and how it's it's kind of the survival mechanism for for some individuals, but then other people come and use their home as a jumping point to try and like literally and physically jump over it because of the house that's right up against it. And so, you know, all that was what when I realized, okay, I 
I, I thought I wanted to just talk about the, you know, gender disparity, but this is laborial disparity. This is class disparity. This is just human disparity, point blank. And so I started using the border as a site for my performances where I would go there and kind of have a more Greek tragedy approach to it. You know, what does it mean to try and sweep the sand and sweep the sand so much that you hope that these things will fall to the ground? And what the things that I'm talking about are these posts that are actually train tracks that are perforated into the sand. And so you know, if, if the government's using these visual metaphors for us, you know, like a train track that's placed vertically instead of horizontally as a way to impose and impede movement and journey, what does it mean to try and sweep it, sweep the sand enough so that they collapse or try and mop the beach around there to pick up and collect the political filth? Um, and so those began my kind of my exploration of different actions um, at that site and it wasn't until 2011 when that site changed um, because at Friendship Park, it's where families would come every Sunday. And so there was this human connection that occurred there. Um, every Sunday, families were allowed to, to get really close to the border, to the physical border. Um, and through these train tracks, they would share meals, share hugs, share stories, and sometimes share each other's presence after not having seen each other for over three decades, sometimes 40 years. And there were these moments where you would witness people, you know, where part of your emotion was incredible joy that they had this connective point, but also this tragic point where it's also like they can't fully hug, you know, it's like with this object in between them it was both beautiful and incredibly tragic uh, you know at the same time but in 2011 sadly under the Obama administration that's when Friendship Park closed its doors and there was no more physical contact allowed between individuals and that's when you would see people literally trying to fit their pinkies across these metal meshes to be able to have human contact with another individual another loved one whether it was their spouse, their child, their grandparent. And before, where I had been incredibly afraid of actually touching the fence, I was so incredibly outraged that I said, you know, this is when I, I really need to touch it. I really need to do something on it. Um, and thus, in 2011, that's when I did Erasing the Border. As you are witnessing this kind of closing portal of contact, uh, of connection. Um, did you find yourself kind of gaining your own relationships with people there and, and families, or did you try to keep a distance to see it, um, you know, more systematically or just, or to, to sense the, the bigger feelings that were going on there? There's a part of, of, of me, I don't know, I can't talk for other people, but there's a part of me that you, you respect people's experiences when you're there. Like you said, I think that was a beautiful way of articulating it, of like that closing portal, because it was a portal. It was their last portal to have human contact. You know, that was the last option. That is the, the very, very end point where they can begin to touch, you know, and how you think about how much strength we gather from each other, from our community, from our tribe, when, you know, when someone hugs you, when someone holds you, it's something that we need, you know, it's something that feeds us. And so that being extracted, there is no intellectual or uh, any way in which I can logically think, separate myself from having a really deep reactive emotion to that when you see people losing all contact with their loved ones. That was, for me, just incredibly inhumane. You become less than human when you're treated that way. And I think that that was, for me, the point where I was like, I need to touch this thing. I need to do something. I need to actually create something on the fence. Um, and, and, and I finally had the courage to do so because... You know, there's there's no way in which you can rationalize that decision, you know, and and things now are even getting worse um, when 
at that moment I was like, this is it. This is like as bad as it gets, you know? And little did I know that that wasn't the worst it got. Borando La Frontera, erasing the border. It was urgent, but it was also majestic. And, you know, I've been teaching images from it for several years in my um, Borders and Boundaries courses um, and just blown away by the intervention itself. Can you talk about how you prepare to erase the border? What goes into it? Like what you have to bring with you and and also what you're willing to face uh, in that moment that you're bringing um, art to this militarized border? Well, first of all, thank you, Paul. That's very generous of you to say. Um, it, it, it literally was this guttural reaction that I had. Um, like I said, I had this moment where I just, I knew I had to do something. I was struggling with, you know, what does that look like? What does that feel like? And I knew the feeling, but I didn't quite know what it would look like. And one morning I just, I just remember waking up and it just, you know, being crystal clear in my mind, what I had to do. (laughs) It wasn't like I went through this process. It literally was like five years of me doing performances there uh, that were completely different. And then one morning it just looked like a totally different thing. And I remember I called my mom really shortly after I I woke up and I was like, "I, I think I need to do this. And I was like, Mamina, I have this idea. What do you think? And she's like, Gordita, you have to come here like tomorrow. When can you come? When can you come down? When can you fly down? And I said, well, uh, you know, uh, maybe in two days, like after I teach. And she's like, do it. Just come down here. I know someone that can help us. Um, you know, like if you want to film this, I know someone. And I was like, okay. So I, I literally just like bought my ticket, like a one-way ticket. I flew down there. And she's like, okay, well, so now what? And I was like, um, let's go look for paint that looks like the color of the sky. And she's like, okay. So we went down, we drove down to Home Depot and like took out a bunch of Pantone chips outside into the parking lot. And we, we must have ruffled through over a hundred Pantone chips and looking at some of her for photographs as well. Um, just looking at the color of the sky around that area in Tijuana and Playas de Tijuana, so we just, you know, bought five gallons of this grayish blue, very, very light hue blue and um, called up our friend uh, David, who had a, a really, really tall ladder. And he had helped me fabricate some pieces before. And we're like, OK, well, we're meeting at the beach at 7 a.m. And her, her friend who was just finished the documentary, um, on the, the kind of the more, the ecosystem of the border and how the border was killing this one of a kind estuary. He had once, uh, worked at Hollywood and his one thing, he was a technician, like, a you know, back in before there was, um, you know, video shop or Photoshop, uh, his one thing for Star Trek, he was the one, um, that was responsible for making individuals disappear through walls. And so he was the one that was going to be videotaping. And I just, Greg Reinoff. And I was like, I love that story of him, that that was his one thing. His one sole job was to do that. So anyway, we show up at 7 a.m. And, you know, put up the ladder, this like 15 foot ladder and I'm there with my dress and my stilettos and I, I just start painting at 7 a.m. And literally 15 minutes into it, I hear this like super loud siren. I'm on the ladder. I turn around and there's this pickup truck police with the siren, with the loudspeaker, someone saying, get down from the ladder. And I was like, oh, fuck. And so I start climbing down. My knees are shaking. Like I'm trying to not fall off the ladder on my stilettos. And, you know, the police who are like dressed in like full on wetsuits are like, you know, you can't be doing this, senorita. And, um, and, you know, you, you realize through, through this conversation or through them kind of like yelling at me that the senorita part was really important because they 
they kind of didn't see me like a hoodlum. They saw me because I was wearing this dress. They saw me as a woman. Like they couldn't divorce themselves from their maleness because I was wearing a dress and shoe, you know, and, and nice shoes, which was my entry point to begin talking with them and having a conversation. So once their like anger subsided a little bit and I got, you know, the 10 full minutes of you're going to get thrown in the car and we're going to take you down to the jail. I, I, I was like, my mom's here. <laughs> you know, I just looked over to my mom and I was like, listen, officers, I'm from Mexico. My mom's from Mexico. We're here. We're just attempting to do this piece, which is called Borrando la Frontera. I don't know if you know what's been happening with Friendship Park. So I literally began to give them my discourse of the concept of the piece, what I was attempting to do, what I was there to do, and why it, why it was that I was doing that, you know? And I could see that they started shifting their the way that they were speaking with me and looking at what I was doing. And at one point I saw one of them smirking, kind of liking the idea that I was creating this hole in the wall. And so I just, after 45 minutes, I was like, officers, please let me just finish what I started. I, I promise, you know, I'll do it really quickly. I'll do it really nicely. It won't take long. I think they were just fed up with me. They're like, okay, just do whatever you want. <laughs> but at that point I was like, if there's a best possible scenario for me getting arrested, it's with my mom in front of me, you know, it's like, <laughs> so, and I think that they were like, okay, what are two women going to do? A daughter and mom, you know, like, so they were just like, okay, okay, stop, stop your yakking, just do what you need to do. Um, so it was just my mom and I just kind of like holding our stance and not wanting to, to give up and not wanting to yield to, you know, this quote unquote authority um, because I was like, listen, all I'm doing is painting it sky blue. All I'm doing is bringing down the sky. And I just kept repeating that over and over. And I think that that's what, you know, that and the dress was kind of what. Hours later, um, and many conversations through that, you know, from individuals that were out there at the beach, attempting to cross other individuals, um, and I like to tell this story of like, I was almost finished, you know, and you, you're so scared that the piece is not going to work, that it's so incredibly simple, that it's not going to do the job, that it's going to be lost in translation, or that it's just going to look not what you were hoping for. So all you have to do is just keep doing it, keep doing it. But there was this moment where I was about to finish and I was on the upper left-hand corner, scaled up on the ladder and there was this man that I could hear yelling and uh, he's like, I get it. I get it. <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> I was like, what he gets it. So even though it's almost done, I was like, I got to come down and just like, I don't know what he needs to tell me, but I, I came down from the ladder and he's like, Oh my God, I run to the border, to the fence, every single day from my house. I come, I touch it, and I run back. And I was running, and it was coming down. The wall was coming down. But then I see you, and I get it. And he said, I, for the first time in all these years, allowed myself to think, what if there were no walls? And in that moment, that's when I knew that it was working. You know, that's when I knew that it was for everyone, you know, because that's uh, all I was hoping for, that even for a split second, people would be able to reimagine re that space, have a different perspective, allow themselves to think, what if there was no wall, you know? You speak of this in these clearly kind of public um, light bulb moments, and also as one kind of connected deeply with your mother. Did you and your mother get closer because of this? And did you discuss with her some of that strategy of, you know, the the choice to wear stilettos or that moment where you're you're recognized as a senorita? Did did you discuss some of those <laughs> those kind of key moments? You know. We've never really discussed. It's not like we, you know, 
have a pep talk or really discuss A through B through C through D, what we're going to do. It's incredibly fluid and organic. And it's like, we're going to put our head down and we're just going to do it. No matter what happens, that's our approach to things. And it's, it's always been mostly like, I don't know, mom, I'm just going to come here and I'm going to be mopping the beach and you do your thing. We kind of do this dance. It's more organic. There's definitely certain frames or things that I'm visualizing that I will sometimes articulate to her um, when she's photographing me for my performances, but it's not, it's not very direct. It tends to be a little bit more fluid. And in this case, I knew she's just, she's a marathoner. She's a, a long distance runner and she's incredibly stoic. So I know that she is the best partner in crime to have because no matter, you know, if shit hits the fan, she's gonna, you know, plant her tennis shoes into the sand and just be as immobile with me, you know, and not give up until the, you know, until we're like taken away quite literally. So there's, I don't know. I can't say much more. It's, it's, it's very organic, I guess. You mentioned your mother is a runner and, and you are as well. How does running inform your practice as an artist, especially in these, you know, intense moments that, that require some kind of endurance? Yeah. You know, Paul, it's, it's incredibly mundane and arbitrary, but I have to say it's very unromantic. You know, I think the most individuals think so, think of artists as having these lightning moments when they're smoking a cigarette and wearing a beret and drinking wine. I don't know, whatever <laughs> cheesy thing is depicted in their imagination of people tell me the craziest things of what they think artists go through or what they live like or what when they're getting their ideas. And I'm like, no, I'm pretty much just covered in sweat, just going on a long run. Um, because I feel for me, it's more when you position your body in this space where it's busy, you know, and it's doing this repetitive motion, somehow it allows your brain to disconnect. And sometimes what I do is I, I tend to push my brain into different directions. Um, and because my body is occupied doing this very mundane, repetitive, same thing, you know, taking a step, taking a step, taking a step, but you're looking into the horizon all of a sudden it's like you have t this weird tunnel vision and your brain just goes into these incredibly different crevices of your imagination. And that's when I get my ideas, you know, and I get back and it's like, I finish and it's almost like, Whoa, what happened? You know, because you allowed your imagination to go to into these, you know, pseudo dark or different um, places that you don't often go to because you're preoccupied, like, oh, I gotta, you know, do laundry. I gotta clean the dishes. I gotta, you know, like with very trivial stuff. And so when you, when you really let your mind go and you have an allocated amount of time, like 45 minutes, an hour, your brain just goes and you're not asleep. You're, con you're fully conscious, but you're not at the same time. And I think that that's, that's really where I get to hash out my ideas. That's really where I allow my imagination to kind of literally run wild. Um, but then I get to kind of redirect it and be like, hmm, I edit it or move it around a little bit. But it's, inc it's not romantic at all. It's sweaty. It's, you know, <laughs> I'm running in my pajamas kind of, you know what I mean? It does, does not look fancy at all. I think being active has, has allowed me to, to kind of stay mentally fit. Um, and it's been really imperative in, 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 in my studio practice, you know, like staying healthy in this way where you keep your mind very active as well. I want to go back to uh, Barando La Frontera and think about in some ways its impact on you and your practice, what that initial work at the beach um, on the border fence um, kind of compelled you to think about continuing the work or, or how did it continue after that day? It's funny in this, not funny, but interesting. My, my work tends to be, it, they're performances that I document through photography or video and then the frame or the stills I use to turn into these photorealistic paintings. 
And so all of a sudden I, I did this very simple, minimal performance where I painted the wall. And so people were like, oh my God, you know, you, you painted the wall having no idea that I was a, a painter to begin with, like an actual on canvas painter. And then I did a painting of myself painting the, the, the wall. So I did a painting of Borrando la Frontera and people, a lot of people have seen that painting and because of the, the, you know, photorealism aspect of it, a lot of people, when they see the painting, they're like, Oh wow. What a, what an incredible idea. You know, someone should do that. And I'm like, no, that, that is, that is a painting of, the photograph from which I did the performance. When people see the photograph, they tend to have this reaction. And when they see the painting, they tend to have this other reaction. And so, and sometimes they, they have a hard time marrying both or the f- understanding that I, I also do paintings of other performances. And so I think it's been interesting to see the feedback of people, of, of understanding that when they see it as a painting, it's almost like it's too magical. You know, it's too like, oh my God, you, you, you painted the wall. When they see the actual wall painted, you know, they tend to have a little bit more of a physical response to it, um, where it's, it tends to be a little bit more direct. And I think that that's really interesting, just understanding the phenomena of how we interpret paintings and how we interpret photography. And I think that that's really fascinating, you know, um, and I feel like individuals that are against that piece have such a visceral reaction, like the hatred. I've gotten so many hate emails and um, when it's been in the media, the things that they have said, it's incredible. Like, you know, we hope you get kicked back, you Mexican terrorist. like, who do you think you are? And, you know, Paul, I'm not sitting there with a gun waiting for individuals, threatening to shoot them. It's like, I literally only use paint on a physical object. There's absolutely no violence, no threat, but that that's the biggest threat. I think that imagination, people that are allowed to imagine can be the biggest threat. And it scares people shitless. That's, I think, one of the clearest things that I've come away with, you know, that it's really, really scary for individuals to think that we can imagine things that are not taken as a given or that we refuse to take things as a given, that we can imagine other possibilities, you know, other perspectives. When you continued this work in Nogales, it was participatory. What was the dynamic like with others who are joining you on both sides? and? Um, did you experience any kind of antidote to that uh, that hatred in this moment of co-creation at the border? You know, when we did it in Nogales in 2015, it just seems, it oddly seems so long ago because this was, this was at the time when the rhetoric was just beginning of Trump building his wall. When he was a candidate, he was not yet the president. And it was incredible to watch the pretty much the entire state of Arizona, like all these liberals coming to Nogales, you know, just showing up. Um, there was an NPR article that was done several days beforehand. I was doing the statewide residencies. I was traveling from city to city um, across Arizona and there were teachers, there were medical students, there were, um, you know, artists, there were from people from all walks of life. Um, and they just showed up that morning there. And I had absolutely no idea what's going to happen. And this time, which was the second time that I was doing it, I was like, okay, (laughs) you know, I have absolutely no permission. I know what happened the first time. I don't know what's going to happen this time. If there's more people and I'm not wearing my dress, you know what I mean? I was just like, just having changuitos, like keeping my fingers crossed. I'm like, please, 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 like let this be safe for everyone. Uh, because you just, you can't measure the reaction of how people, you know, how the police is gonna, gonna see it. And all these people gathered were painting 
and then the, you know, the beautiful part of it is that you, you never know who's going to show up or who will happen to be there. And, you know, there were two individuals that showed up that completely moved me. Um, one was Miguel and he, at one point, um, he was living on the street on the streets, but at one point had painted houses. So he wasn't afraid of heights. And so he was able to scale the tallest part of the ladder without any fear. And you could see how agile he was and how like he was reliving part of his experience of his previous profession. There was this wealthy owner of a, of a ranch in El Paso that had showed up as well. He was Miguel's assistant for the entire morning. So it was beautiful to see kind of the reversal, you know, and another individual that showed up who was also living on the street and he was collecting cans that morning because he had recently been deported. And, you know, his experience with, with that action was completely different from mine because he really wanted it because his entire life was on the other side his wife and his two daughters were on the other side. And all he wanted was to be able to paint through that fence and get back to his family. And there was this moment where he was painting and this border patrol agent came up to us. And then I was like, Oh fuck, here we go. And he's like, what are you guys doing? And we told him and he picked up a roller and two seconds later, without any question or without saying anything, he was painting side by side next to Luis. And so for me, it's like that moment in which the, you know, Luis, the deported migrant uh, along the border patrol agents were painting side by side. It's like, you can't, you can't curate these moments. And it's sometimes it's even difficult to imagine, you know, or construct the possibility of having this happen. But that is absolutely the beauty of public art. When you just create a, you create an action where people are just, attracted to it becomes the nucleus to so many so many things happening and so many beautiful encounters occurring that you would have not been able to imagine. In your work, you've continued to engage other sites of division around the world, and including um, in the Mediterranean, responding to the migrant crisis. Have you been compelled to create projects um, at the site of the border, at the site of conflict? Um, or have other sites required you to vary your approach? Similarly to the Tijuana-San Diego border, in which, for example, you know, I went to the border and I did performances there for X amount of years before I touched the border itself. I think I, I felt the need to, to do work that was about this other border. And the most violent and the deadliest border at the moment right now, which is the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and it's different, Paul, you know, it's, I mean, I, I, I felt the need to like be there physically and do this um, action, which was to attempt to swim, dance, struggle, survive with this bedsheet um, at night uh, underwater uh, while wearing my dress and my heels and so I did this performance for, for several nights um, and for about uh, three hours each day. Um, and so the difference being that there were many differences, but one of them is that the, the, the border between Tijuana and San Diego, not only is it militarized, but it's a physical construct made by man, whereas in the Mediterranean Sea, it's a natural border, you know, and it's incredibly violent and deadly because it's, in, it's just unpredictable, but it's natural. So it's, it, it, it's so different, you know, um, it's so uncontrollable, whereas the, the physical fence, it's more controlled and the violence is being very directed and being curated. Whereas you know, nature is just doing what nature does. You know, it has these violent storms and it drowns thousands of individuals attempting to cross the Mediterranean Sea. You know, and I think that the, the part in which there's the human element is the, the unwillingness to rescue individuals, watch them drown. You know, that's, that's the part of like actually not doing anything that causes all these deaths. So it's the inaction, whereas the border in Tijuana and San Diego between New Mexico and the U.S., it's the action. 
So it's it's very different, and the the energy and the friction is very different. And so I'm trying to figure out more ways in which I can interact um, with that border. Um, and I'm still kind of trying to wrap my 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 head with you know the performance that I did two years ago, and trying to see you know there's still work coming out from that, but to, trying to kind of let that still simmer and, and, and see what more percolates. Um, because it does take time. I, I, I take a lot of time, you know, took me five years to figure out Borrando la Frontera. I, I'm kind of like a slow artist in that regard where I let things um, present themselves, you know. Speaking of, of rhythms, you're one artist among um, several others who was interrogating the inhumanity at the border. Um, for years before the kind of most recent spike in in attention. What, in thinking about the moment that we're in now with um, the ongoing border crisis, the ongoing um, crisis of families being separated or, or being detained in makeshift camps uh, along the border when seeking asylum, how do you try to respond to that? How in your work do you re- respond to this amping up of of pressure and urgency beyond a point that you had already um, spotlighted previously? Well, you know, Paul, in 2011, one of the other reasons why I did Borrando la Frontera was because I knew through um, my mom and Greg Reinoff, the, the individual who had filmed me, um, and other individuals, that family separations were happening. Um, we knew of a mother that had her three-month baby taken away from her, and she never saw them again. You know, and no one, no one was believing this. You know, Obama was this, he can do no wrong individual. And so we knew that this was happening and yet no one, yeah, no one was, no one was wanting to take responsibility for that information. It's like, hear no evil, speak no evil. Um, and so, you know, now that round two comes along and people are, (laughs) are believing much more credible from Trump and obviously it's happening. It's still definitely always part of my psyche and I'm always thinking about it. And I know that there's more work that's going to stem from it. There's uh, different interventions I'm interested in doing. And I've been um, doing, I've been in a lot of conversations with different individuals, such as Ronald Rael, who's an architect um, here in Berkeley. Um, And we've done a series of of talks and and exhibitions together. Um, But it's, it's definitely it's different now. And so I think my tactic also needs to change, um, to, to better articulate what's happening now and how different it is from back then. Um, so like I said, it's, it's, it will, it will come, come. It's just, um, I have a bunch of different ideas and they're just, they're still gathering form in, in my head and I, I need to come clear with it, um, before I can actually, uh, let myself get to it. But it, like with everything, you know, it's, it's always like anything new, it's always terrifying. And, um, there's, there's also, um, not so much about the, the family separations, uh, but there is a piece that, you know, I'm, I'm finally coming, that it's finally coming together, um, where it was about, when at the time where the government shut down, you know, and the, because I'm, I'm so interested in language, um, constantly. And I, I tend to look at that and the way that people express themselves and this, this idea of drawing a line, you know, and, um, Trump kept saying like, I'm drawing my line. And I'm like, I think of the border as this very literal line. The reason why I wear my, my black dress and stilettos comes from the, the visual language of tango. And so when you're dancing tango, you draw lines all the time, but it takes two people to draw and create those lines. And there, there's so much about, you know, the energy and so much of the reason why I, I, I chose tango, the tango attire to do all my performances in 
is because the power symmetry is so equal. The leader pushes into the follower as hard as the, the follower into the leader. So there's this incredibly dynamic, symmetrical union of energy that goes in and then gets exerted out. You know, I've always used that in all my performances, but in this case, you know, I'm trying to work with um, a different institution to create a line, a different type of line to articulate that you need both parties, you know, to create this line. And I'm not only like drawing a line on the ground, but trying to draw a line on the side of a wall with your feet by doing a tango, a tango movement. So, I mean, my, (laughs) it's, it's always, for me, it's always really abstract, but trying to use different visual languages and the direct language as well. And whatever, um, you know, especially things that get articulated over and over in the media and trying to, for me, trying to reconstruct ideas um, of how, language gets used. Before we go, I want to ask a final question about a, a, a different kind of dance. Um, you uh, recently collaborated with Rebecca Solnet um, on the book, Men Explain Things to Me, um, which included uh, pictures of you um, in various projects, whether submerged in water or enacting your interventions on the border. What were you trying to uh, make visible, make known um, in this collaboration? You know, I think that for me, Rebecca is one of the most articulate weavers of constellations. And when I say constellations, concepts, you know, these, these ideas that she pulls from different points and creates these stories, these, these narratives that present our, you know, contemporary issues in so much of a a much more poetic and clear way to us, you know, so we can like re-see ourselves. And for me, I've always been enamored with all her writing. I've read practically all her books. Um, So when she approached me and she said, you know, I'm going to put this essay that's about one of your pieces and this other one has um, a description of another piece that you did, I think it'd be great if we can use your images, you know? And so for me, it was a way of like constructing a constellation with her about different metaphors. And, um, you know, there's, uh, there's, for me, there's so much about identity and, you know, one of the, the pieces that she shows, um, it's an untitled piece, but it has a sub subtitle that's uh, hold the line, which I'm, pretty much being eaten up by, by a, a, a bed sheet that I'm suspending on a line, on a clothesline. Um, and it was a, a performance that I did around the time of SP 1070 in Arizona, the introduction of ra- racial profiling. There's uh, the hiding of identity, but then revealing of other truths in the attempt to hide your identity. And so, so much of that writing is, you know, trying to push through that insistence of hiding the identity, that initial story that she begins with of like someone insisting that they know more about the story that she wrote (laughs) more than her, you know? And so it's, it's kind of like the pushing through and the pushing against and trying to form a constellation of the different ways in which we'll not resist being silent. Or at least for me, it was an incredible honor, you know, to be part of that constellation. Ana Teresa Fernandez, thank you so much for this conversation today and for joining the Monument Lab podcast. Thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciate all your questions and, you know, all the, uh, for me, the discoveries of, you know, articulating these stories with you always leads me to acknowledge different things, even within myself. So thank you so much for that. To learn more about Ana Teresa Fernandez, you can visit her website at AnaTeresaFernandez.com. Next episode, we'll hear from artists Anthony Romero, Josh Rios, and Matt Joint, recorded live from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis. The three artists are a part of a large exhibition, Counter Public, hosted by St. Louis's Luminary. You can listen to Monument Lab and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you like the show, remember to leave a rating or review. It really helps. The Monument Lab Podcast 
is supported by the Serdna Foundation. This podcast is written and produced by Paul Farber and Justin Geller. Designer and associate producer is William Roy Hodgson. Sound engineer, Justin Geller. Editorial coordinator, Steph Garcia. All music on the podcast is original by Mokita. I'm your host, Paul Farber. For more, visit us at monumentlab.com or find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.